Hi, this is Cami Donaldson, your host with the Native Plant Horticulture Foundation. In this episode of Go Native, the Business of Native Plants, we talk to David Dryley, a pioneer in Florida's native plant movement. In the late 1970s, David was specifying native plants in his college design projects as a landscape architecture student. When he graduated and began working, he quickly found out that the plants he wanted to use simply were not available. So he began growing them. David was either the first or among the very first growers to introduce many plants now considered staples in the trade, such as mulligrass, Mullenbergia capillaris, and silver saw palmetto, Saranoa repens, silver selection. David's nursery, Green Images Native Landscape Plants in Christmas, Florida, still operates, but you definitely want to call ahead, probably more than once. My name is David Dryley. I'm the owner of Green Images Nursery in Christmas, Florida. We grow Florida native landscape plants for 42 years and continuing. So you started your career as a landscape architect in 1980, and just two years later, you were growing native plants. So how did that happen and why? In 1980, there was a little recession, national recession. I came to Orlando, was working in an office as a landscape architect. We had a large project, and I wanted to use cord grants around a giant parking lot and a few other natives, certainly, but there were none being grown. I mean, I couldn't specify it if it wasn't grown somewhere for the contractor to buy it. I also then sort of designed a uh, in-house nursery <laughs> so then we could grow plants. And in my quest to find native plants, the garden club ladies in Orlando steered me to Steve Riefler. I was going out to Steve Riefler's nursery on the weekends. I said, can we grow cord grass in a pot? So we were experimenting, the two of us. We were experimenting with a few other plants. He was growing some native azaleas and native magnolias from North Florida. He had an interest. He wasn't selling a lot of them, but he had an interest in those plants. Then he put his place up for sale. That was a issue, but he wanted to move to North Florida. And the price was attractive. I bought his property. So, you know, I was learning. Steve was learning. We were both sort of learning about some things together. He had a, a little more of an innate ability than I did. So I was probably learning more from him than he, me, but I was looking at the landscape application and, and identifying plants that had good promise in the commercial marketplace. So the eighties were really, most of the growers were driven by the wetland plant market generated by the Warren S. Henderson Wetland Act in 1984. That, I started to make money finally <laughs> growing and selling plants. One of the first things I did was grow a, a, a large crop. I mean, a couple of hundred. It was a large crop to me at the time. I only had about an acre of a nursery or three quarters of an acre of a nursery. But I filled up half of it with winged elms. Love the tree. 
So everybody should use the tree. And all I needed to do was grow some. And then people would buy them. Well, it doesn't happen that way. People have to know the plant. They have to know you have it before it's going to get sold. Education. Education. So again, with the association, we began hosting educational events for the landscape architects, targeting them as a group that specifies plant materials and landscape. If they had a larger list to draw from, and they had a list of growers and places where the plants could be purchased, that would help our effort. And it, and it did. Those winged elms, I probably wound up throwing half of those away. It was, um, I got them up into 15-gallon pots. I mean, they were already seven, eight feet tall, perfect. Anyway, another friend mentioned to me that in order to introduce a new plant into the marketplace, you really need about six or seven other nurseries growing it around the state or in the region before it'll start to take off. Aha. So you need critical mass of supply to also stimulate demand for that plant. Now, so you were growing winged elm in the 80s and didn't have a strong market for it. But I'm pretty sure I remember in the 1990s, winged elm being selected as, you know, a great tree to plant by FNGLA. Well, this was early 80s. I was active with the FNGLA at that time. And when they, some of their members pushed, I pushed back harder. I'm just saying that I think there was maybe a decade mismatch there between your supply. Yeah, it was too late to sell my original crop of winged elm. Yeah. Uh, yes, but finally, and, and now it's used everywhere around in commercial property because it's perfect. It's lawn tolerant. It's drought tolerant. It'll take some wet soil. It's not really an understory tree, but it's it's only about a 30, 35-foot tree as opposed to the Florida M, which requires wet soil, and it goes to 60 or 70 feet. Another landscape architect came out and looked at my first crop. said, oh, my gosh. He looked at it in the wintertime with all the leaves off, but all the weed, weed bark is there. So it looks like murder on Elm Street out there. <laughs> Deciduous plants. Really hard. David, I think you were involved in introducing mealygrass, Mullenbergia, Capillaris. I was the first one to grow it in a pot. Nobody has disputed that with me. It's a good plant for Florida landscape. Actually, up in South Carolina, it's the low country grass that they weave into baskets. It's the same plant. There are other species of mully that grow out west and grow in other areas. We don't really have any way to prevent those from getting into the marketplace, which could sort of mess up. Somebody specifies it on a plan, they expect to see the plants that our member nurseries grow, and yet the contractor bought it from somebody else, and it's not the same species, you know? That will always be something we have to look out for. But I saw it behind the dunes up the beaches in St. Augustine. I grew up going to Crescent Beach and there it was in flower. And I, I grabbed some seed and brought it back and it sprouted and 
look at this. Well, I, I took it to the 1984 Native Plant Conference. Hey, look, at, I've got 2,000 of these things. What am I going to do with them? That, you know, Dick Workman saw them, and he says, let me go back. I think I've got somebody that will buy them from you. So he found a, a golf course community or a big project down in Fort Myers, and they did buy them. So thankfully, that reminds me that as a nurseryman, the best thing he can do is sell the, all the plants that he grows in order to make money if he's pricing and everything is good. If you grow something and you only sell half of them, you lose money. So it's hard to bring new plants into the marketplace with an unknown market. Most people won't risk their investment or time. The mulligrass caught on pretty quick. Initially, I sold a whole lot of them. And then people, other large growers came on and they were selling them really cheap, cheaper than I was willing to go. And Reefler warned me about that, that anything that's relatively easy to grow, you'll only have command of the market for a very limited period of time and other people will come in and take the market share away from you. Huh. So there's a lesson learned right there. It's competitive out there. It's competitive. What were some of the biggest surprises to you about the growing profession or the growing business? Surprises. The wetland plant market, we started growing cypress trees. I mean, at one point, in the 90s, I was growing 50,000 three-gallon cypress trees a year and selling them, along with black gum and ash and Loblolly Bay and everything else. Well, that's an ongoing enterprise. So it afforded me, I was insulated, I guess, financially by selling all of those plants that I could grow, afford the time to grow salt palmettos and kind of wait for that market to mature, as well as some other plants. When the wetland plant market was basically nearly shut down by mitigation banking, all of a sudden our sales for wetland trees and plants just stopped. And now I had to live on saw palmetto and other shrubs. That was an eye-opening time and period. <laughs> Now I had to really be careful and yeah. uh, smart. Thinking back on how your business has evolved, what were some of the best business decisions you made? Best business decisions. <laughs> <laughs> and you're laughing out. There's some good ones. <laughs> well, buying some property to expand the nursery was a good investment decision. I was very unlucky with some other investment decisions. You know, hurricanes, hard freezes in the 80s, in 1983, 87, 89, killed a lot of my plants. I mean, native or not, if you're growing a plant at a pot above ground, it's not as cold hardy as it might be if it were planted in the ground. Lost my first crop of salt palmettos that way at 18 degrees above ground. You know, that's a learning experience. I'm not necessarily a bad business uh, uh, decision. 
probably should have been focused a little more on customer relations. I was kind of not real good at it and much too aloof with customers. I didn't focus enough attention on my customers. One of the other things that we did early, and Richard Morrood was uh, very instrumental in this strategy, the landscape codes that every city and county has, they didn't have many native plants on their list. I mean, they had the oak tree and the pine tree, but you know, very few other species. One was to get some of the native plants that were then available to buy listed on the landscape code. Two, Sanibel was probably the first one to bite. They adopted an ordinance requiring 75% native plants in landscape. Palm Beach picked up again with Richard and the Native Plant Society chapter members down there. They adopted a 50% requirement. That was very important because most of the sales today, and that remains important because most of the plant sales, while a few go to homeowners, most of the plant sales are driven by the commercial domain. New home communities do a big planting at the beginning. They don't tend to continue planting later. Homeowners might buy a few plants here and there, but most of the demand is is um, in sales are for commercial projects, which is why we've seen more of our growers growing more of the name varieties because the commercial market likes those, the shiny leaves, the big flowers. It's the same demand as it was 50 years ago, 40 years ago. But now we replace it with a native that has shiny leaves and big flowers. They're not doing it to um, generate habitat values as was originally intended. So that brings up the a topic that we didn't address before. Native cultivars. What do you have to say about cultivars, David? Well, I sat on a native plant society discussion about cultivars 15 years ago and the nature conservancy member was there they don't like the cultivars so much and made it known and i understood their position she suggested and rightfully uh, that that if homeowners or businesses planted native cultivars adjacent to some natural lands, that we might lose the genetic purity of the beauty berry of the Walters viburnum in those natural lands. It's possible that that's true. And, and Richard Morrow said it, it didn't have to be a named variety. Just the fact that we collect seeds of a plant doesn't mean that they have the genetic composition important to preserving the gene pool of that species because we're falsely sprouting seed that might not have sprouted out in the wild. So we're manipulating the genes pool that way. A lot of the varieties that we have, we've taken cuttings. So then 
all of those named varieties are grown from a plant, a clone or clones of one plant. That's not genetic diversity. However, it does meet the, the commercial criteria and the commercial standard. They don't want seed grown voltage viburnum with all different shapes and sizes involved. They want a consistent product that they can count on. So I, I also suggested to the nature conservancy, I said, unless it's illegal, it's going to happen. Whether it's a fan member or what the, the nursery industry will grow and sell whatever's legal and you're not going to ever get this made illegal. I suggested that the best thing to do would be to perhaps encourage a buffer zone around natural lands where the plantings within a mile, whatever distance you chose around the natural lands, maybe, maybe you don't use cultivars. That's probably more doable than trying to eliminate cultivars. It's out of the bag and there's nobody watching the bag anyway. Right. Talking about diversity, something that I've noticed in the native plant industry is that, of course, people who are very devoted to native plants and the cause, they're really interested in growing all these different species. They're interested in growing a diversity of species, which is a lot harder than just growing one or two or a small number of species. You have to learn about all these different plants. You have to be able to meet all their different needs. There's just a lot more complexity. And I know there are different ideas, uh, certainly in the fan membership, about what constitutes quality. You know Roger Triplett from Green Seasons. He's always uh, stressing the garden center quality aspect, better aesthetics, healthier plants. Plants are little more uniform, at least in how they're presented. This seems like a challenge area. And, you know, I hear all kinds of conversations about, oh, you should grow as many different species as you can to know you should find what you grow and grow it well. You should grow a small number of species. You know, it's a contentious topic. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on growing diversity and achieving a quality product? I don't think there's any one set rule if somebody was just starting out, maybe they should start with a smaller list of plants rather than trying to grow everything. It's all driven by the person. If, if the person is uh, just loves out being out and collecting seeds and, and doing propagating, basically. Propagating and being a nurseryman can be two different things. Some nurseries don't propagate that much of their own material. They buy liners from liner farms. I mean, companies that sell liners and step it up into a larger size they just stick it in a bigger pot they don't know where the seed came from they don't know did it come from north florida central florida tennessee i mean hopefully not tennessee i've noticed a big difference between and i had to buy some cypress trees from superior trees up in the panhandle and there's some other species of, of panhandle trees that will grow in central Florida that I've bought from Superior. But their cypress trees drop their leaves a month earlier than our local stock. And they, they budded out about a month later in the spring than our local stock. So there was genetic variation just in a matter of 
200 miles. Is that what we refer to as ecotypes? Maybe more even micro-ecotype, but yes. Yes. And David, that's an example of something. It seems to me that there are so many things that nursery growers just have to learn through observation and experience. And that's an example. I mean, who's going to tell you that that's going to happen? That is true. I don't know that they teach that at the University of Florida. I took the horticulture classes and, um, and nobody came around and told me, you know, Riefler was a wealth of information and because he had, per but he, a lot of what he knew was trial and error. Some people go to work for probably a good idea, go work for another old nurseryman and see how they've been doing it and what, how they address things and learn what they took them 30 years to learn. You could learn it in, in a shorter period of time. That might be good advice to somebody starting out. Don't, don't just start out because you got a degree in biology and you like to walk in the woods because <laughs> there's a lot of hard work involved and some knowledge. You know, again, we discussed the difference between a propagator and a nurseryman. A propagator being someone that grows from seed. Yeah. Or, or cuttings. Hmm. A lot of things are grown from cuttings because it's faster than seed. Like the Loblolly Bay, we grew from cuttings. You can grow it from seed, but from cuttings, it would flower as a, as a one-year-old plant, and the seeds would take four or five years before they would flower. Wow, that's a big difference. Well, that was something Riefler knew and taught me. He's taught other nurseries. He's, he's worked in collaboration with a number of nurseries around the state. You know, if you could look back... <laughs> What do you wish somebody had told you or advised you in terms of what to consider and how to prepare yourself? Working for others that have been in business is very important. That's how you're going to learn the trade. It's more of a trade than some schools have some nursery management and horticulture classes that are related to growing. And that would be a good place to start, I guess, if you were in school. But learning from others would be very invaluable, whether it's to be in the nursery business or the landscape construction business. And I, and I mentioned landscape construction because it can help you and help a, a new nursery sell the plants they're growing is to grow what you want to plant on a project. So then you can buy your own plants to use on landscape projects. And it's then a fairly immediate increase in income, value-added service, et cetera. I've, I've often thought that the best thing that a retail, a, a startup retail nursery could do is just, you operate the retail nursery as a storefront for your landscape construction business, if you're going to sell retail. Selling retail is a whole another ballgame than, than commercial uh, sales, some Zoning, property zoning can preclude you from selling retail. So you need a storefront where people can either find you. Some of us that started wholesale nurseries and then sell retail plants and we're out in the middle of nowhere, we're down a, a dirt road that treacherous to drive down. 
you know, that's not welcoming right at the beginning. It doesn't meet the needs of a lot of retail customers. They're sort of turned off at the beginning. And even though you've got the plants they want, anyway, that's some thoughts about that. Are there opportunities that you see today that maybe weren't available before, earlier, that you think are things, you know, are maybe good opportunities that people ought to look at, like different kinds of business models or settings or needs? Yeah, the more retail, you can spend a lot of time just talking with people when you do retail and not selling anything and not getting any work done. If you're somebody that likes to chat with people too, then, you know, you can lose a half a day all of a sudden. That's not profitable. One of the reasons too, I, I've always continued to push natives in the landscape. I believe that in, important for homeowners to be able to touch nature every day. We stand a chance of losing them as voters for environmental programs and policies if if they lose touch with nature. I mean, the kids are already cloistered in the den all day on the weekend playing video games. They're not out about. They're not they're not in nature. The size of people's yards are smaller. There's not really that you can't really go play ball hardly in, in some of the small yards anymore not throw it very far, but, but just to see some birds out of a window, even is better than no birds out of the window. I think it's important that we provide services that help, help people maintain a connection to nature. Then the native plant society is very important there and leading field trips out into uh, natural areas. Another great place to learn from people about native plants is to attend Native Plant Society meetings and conferences and field trips. I learned a lot from our members, Native Plant members. So are there any final thoughts you want to share on the business of Native Plants? You have to be absolutely passionate about nature and about nature's relationship with people and if you're not, maybe you shouldn't get into it because there may be times when you're hot and tired or you are, don't have quite as much money as you had hoped that that's all that's going to carry you forward is that passion. And it's infectious too. I mean, it, it, it could help you with sales and it could help you communicate with customers if you're hungry. <laughs> but we really want people in the industry that have good ethics about what they do if it's just about making money or just about turning plants over and i there's some nurseries now growing some native plants but that is their that is all the, they're like business majors they're not naturalists it's just a commodity to them. They could be selling anything. They're allowed to do that. Um, it's legal, but there's no passion there. That will really help you if, you if you've got the passion. Yeah. So ideally, we'd bring passion and some business sense 
and some growing knowledge. And I like your tip about going to work for a nurseryman. There's plenty of nurserymen that would like to have some some good help. Maybe that apprenticeship program needs to come around. Mentor program. Actually, the mentor thing is just all about somebody just telling somebody else what to do or how to do it or counseling. Yeah, it's, it's all right. But it would be better if they were interning with a company for very little pay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Hey, David, this has been great. And thanks. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to Go Native, the Business of Native Plants, a podcast from the Native Plant Horticulture Foundation. If you're interested in working with native plants or simply want to see the native plant industry grow and thrive, please visit our website, nativeplanthort.org, where you can learn more about our work and support us.